this, uh, this morning we're in the midst of our global outreach emphasis here at Mount Hope every fall. We talk about our responsibility. We do it throughout the year, but specifically we take three Sundays in the fall. We had one in September already when Don was here, Don Butera. And this Sunday and next Sunday we take time to especially remember and look at our responsibility as followers of Jesus to, that we are not to be dead ends, that we are not to be, uh, you know, uh, cul-de-sacs when it comes to the gospel. It's to flow through us to others. And so we talk about, we'll be talking about that the next couple of Sundays. And today I'm excited for you to hear about from a special guest speaker who is uh, working in the area of global outreach. His name is Rob Malcolm. And uh, I've gotten to know Rob a little bit over the last few years, and I'm excited that you get to hear him this morning. And I give you three reasons why you want to pay attention and listen to Rob this morning. Ready? Here they are. I'm sure there's more than three he can give you, but I'm going to give you three. First reason why you need to listen to Rob Malcolm this morning is because he has an awesome accent that you're going to enjoy listening to. I, ha- I won't tell you what the accent is, but I watched Braveheart to prepare myself this week for it. Rewatched it. Second reason you need to listen to Rob is because he has called by God to minister in a place that is difficult, where there are really smart people who are really hostile and indifferent to the message of Jesus Christ. And this is also where you and I are called to minister and live out our faith in this part, in this Boston area in New England. Third reason you want to list to Rob, one of the great things about his story that I love is Rob was uh, called by God. He already had a PhD in geosciences. He had already served as a professor in a university, and God called him to full-time vocational ministry. And that's a great story because I think some of you sitting in these chairs will have a similar story someday that God may call you out of where you are to go do something else for him. And uh, so Rob's got a word for us this morning. Would you welcome him as he comes to share? Good morning. morning. Pastor told me I had two hours. Is that right? Some of you are like, (laughs) he told me I had an hour. I'm joking. It's good to be with you this morning. Yeah, my accent isn't local. I'm from Arkansas. <laughs> if you call me Irish, I'll really, I will get a little bit upset. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. Irish are almost Scottish, but not quite. Okay? So, uh, I think a picture of my family should come up in a moment. Here we are. Uh, myself and my wife, Sarah. My wife is American. She grew up in the Midwest. She, ha- she was a, a, a missionary kid. Uh, and she has always been in missions in some way or form. And in 2004, she came to Scotland to pioneer uh, a new ministry that I'll talk about in a moment. And she came back to the U.S. five years later with a husband and a small child. I don't think that's what she intended to see, but that's what God planned. And we have now lived in the U.S. for 10 years. Uh, We work for an organization called Chi Alpha, or Chai Alpha, or Chai Alpaca. People don't always get our name right. I love our name, I don't love our name, because we are a college ministry. So people think we're a fraternity. We're like, we're not a frat. (laughs) But uh, Chi Alpha is the outreach to the secular universities of the United States, the the movement that we are part of. We are what are called U.S. missionaries. So as a family, we are full-time missionaries to Yale University. Third best in the nation, 12th best in the world. 
But God has called us as a family to be salt and light and truth into the midst of that very difficult community. And again, I'll tell you a little bit more about that later. We have two young kids. Cameron, our son, is 10. He is me. Rule follower. Everything's black and white. Stay within the boundaries. Our daughter, Lily, is seven. She sees your rules. She pushes your rules away. She does whatever her free spirit wants to do. She is her mom. Okay. But as I said, we live in New Haven, Connecticut, and we've been at Yale. This is our sixth year on campus. So I want to begin this morning by telling you about a young man called Kaizen Seth. You've never heard of Kaizen Seth. But when he was 19 weeks in the womb, his parents got some bad news. They said, there's three things happening to your son right now. Number one, he is developing a hydrocephalus, which is water on the brain. His spine is not fusing properly, and he most likely will have spina bifida. They said, we have three options. Number one, we abort. Number two, we wait till full term and try and operate when he is born. Or number three, we do in utero uh, operation. For the family, number one wasn't an option, but they chose number three. So when that little fetus was 19, 20 weeks old, they operated to resolve all those issues. And they did it successfully. He's now a very healthy young man. But you see, that amazes me. Can you imagine the skill of those surgeons, the ability of their hands to work on a 19-week, 20-week-old fetus? That's a very small baby. But the skill of their hands and what was in their hands, they could do a great work. You know, I've followed Jesus for almost 30 years. And he asked me the same question all the time. Rob, What's in your hands? What's in your hands this morning? Because what he's really asking me in that moment is this. Do you trust me with what's in your hands? Are you willing to give me what's in your hands? Because really what he's asking is, do you believe that I'm a good God? And that if you give me the things in your hands, I can do great things. So what about you this morning? What's in your hand this morning? Maybe it's your resume. It's, a, it's your skills, it's your gifts, it's your talents. And maybe you think this morning that you don't have much of them. And what you do have, God could never use. So you decide, you know what? God can't use me. Because I don't have much to offer. Or here's another one that might be in your hands, and it's a big one for us today. It's your time. You know, it's funny, isn't it? If you speak to someone, you say, how are you doing? What do they often answer? Oh, I'm busy. We've made busyness an idol in our culture. Because if I'm busy, I must be important. And you know, the test is always if you go to someone and say, how are you doing? And they say, you know what? Pretty good, I've got lots of free time. I'm not doing very much. And we kind of look at them like, what are you doing? You know, we've become a culture where, well, why aren't you busy? Why aren't you doing things? It's become an idol. So when the call goes out from this church, hey, we need people to help with, we're like, whoa, no. I don't have time to do that. 
Whether that is to greet someone at the front door or to help with kids' church or to be part of the mission of this church. We say, oh no, no. I don't have the time. Now I get it. We have two young kids. Have you ever seen those old movies where it's a wartime movie and there's that big map and they're like pushing boats or troops on the map? That kind of feels like our life with our kids. It's like, what, what do you mean Lily has dance class tonight? Cameron has an event and I'm busy. We need a third parent in this house at this moment. There's not enough of us to man the house. So, I get it. Our life is busy. You know, I often say to our students at Yale, how's your devotional life? And the answer often is, oh, I just don't have time for a devotional life. And we say to them, no, 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 you don't get to say that. You've got to be honest and say, I didn't prioritize my devotional life. You have time, you just chose something else. So often for you and me, when the call comes out to be involved in the mission of the church, we look at our schedules and we're like, I don't have the time. I have from 8 p.m. to 9 p.m. at night and I just want to fall asleep in front of the TV and go to bed at 9 p.m. That's pretty much my life, if I'm being honest. Because we're so busy, we're so tired because of our busyness. Here's the final thing that can be in our hand this morning, and this is a hard one. It's our money. Now, I don't know about you, but I often feel there's too much month at the end of my money. You know, as missionaries, we get a disbursement once a month. And for like two days, I'm like, we're good, we're okay. And then the third day, I'm like, where did it go? What do you mean we have to pay bills? Is that really important? Do we really have to pay them? You know, it seems like the money disappears so quickly. So when the call comes to invest in the mission of the church, we say, I don't have much in my hand. And what I do have, it's mine. And I get that. I understand that. And we put our hand back in our pocket. What's in your hand this morning? Your skills, your talents, I don't have much. Your time, I don't have any. Your finances, what little I have is mine. You see, this morning we're going to look at a great Jesus story where Jesus speaks to this very thing and he speaks to you and me about these very things. And what we're going to see in this story is simply this, that if we would trust God with what we have, he will take what seems like nothing and make it into everything. He will take the little and make it into abundance when we're willing to give him what's in our hand. Can we do that this morning? Let's read a scripture in John 6, verses 1 through 14. Many of us know this story, but some of us don't, so let's read it together. John 6, verse 1. After this, Jesus went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, also called the Sea of Tiberias. A large crowd kept following him because they saw the signs that he was doing for the sick. Jesus went up the mountain and sat down there with his disciples. Now the Passover, the festival of the Jews, was near. When he looked up and saw a large crowd coming towards him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread for these people to eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he was going to do. Philip answered him, Six months' wages would not buy enough bread 
for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they among so many people? Jesus said, Make the people sit down. Now there was a great deal of grass in the place, so they sat down, about 5,000 in all. Then Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. When they were satisfied, he told his disciples, gather up the fragments left over, so that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up, and from the fragments of the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten, they filled twelve baskets. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they began to say, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Let's pray. Jesus, your words are true. Whether we feel it or whether we believe it, they're still true. So this morning, give us open hearts to hear these true words that we would be changed. Holy Spirit, that can only happen because of you. So Holy Spirit, Breathe life into us today, that the words of Jesus would transform us, metamorphose us into who you're calling us to be. And all God's people said, Amen. You know, this story has three characters. So let's begin with our first character. The first character are are the disciples, Philip and Andrew. Now, it's funny, when you ask people, name the 12 disciples, they go, oh, okay, James, John, Peter, Thomas, Thor, <laughs> Captain America, pretty sure in there. You know, poor Philip and Andrew, they're not always the best known of the disciples. And if I were them, I would be like, for real, the story that's recorded about us is this one? You know, it's not like they get the best shot in this story. I'd be like, oh, could you not pick another story? So here we have Philip and Andrew. Well, it's interesting, Jesus says, first of all, to Philip, of all the 12, he turns to Philip and says, hey, Philip, where will we get food for all these people? Now, if I was one of the other 12, I would be stepping back going, I'm so glad he asked him. I will just fade into the background in this moment and not be involved in this story. Poor Philip, right in the front. Well, why did Jesus ask Philip? Well, most likely, this was where Philip was from. So if anyone knew where Stop and Shop was... It was Philip. So Jesus asked Philip, but what does Philip do? He looks at the mission and says, it's too big. He looks out at 5,000 people and says, they are too many. He made a decision, we can't complete this mission because the mission is much bigger than us. Now it also says that Jesus said this to Philip to test him. Well, don't think school test where you fail or you get an A and you're done. That's not how Jesus works. He's too gracious. You see, Jesus wants to test us in things to shape us and form us that we trust him more. And if we don't do well, it's okay. He'll just put us back around the mountain till we get it again. So this was a trust test for Philip and Andrew. Do they trust him? Do they really believe he is who he says he is? And they don't do very well. But that's okay, that's good news, because we get to learn from what they didn't do. So Philip says, the mission is too big. And then we have Andrew, and Andrew is the other side of the coin. 
Andrew does something pretty audacious. He says, hey, here's someone with food. Let's take their food. Wow, Andrew, that was very kind of you. You offered up someone else's food. Let's just take the little boy's food. But what does he say? But it's not enough. You see, Andrew's the flip side of Philip's coin because instead of seeing the mission too big, he thinks the resource is too small. What we have will never, will never satisfy. It's not enough. He's the opposite side of the coin. For Philip, the mission was too big. For Andrew, we are not enough. Is that how you feel sometimes? Well, the mission to reach Burlington is too big. They don't care about Jesus. They don't want to know Jesus. There's too many. And we are too small. There's not enough of us. How on earth can we do this? So often we can be like Philip and Andrew. You know, there's a story told about Henry Ford of the Ford Motor Company. He brought in all of his top engineers and described to them a new engine he wanted designed. And these smart, resourceful people said, we can't do that. And he said, well, I'm the boss. Go design my engine. And for six months, they tried to design this engine. And they came back and they said, we can't do it. And he said, I'm still the boss. Go design my engine. So for another six months and another six months, it took them. But eventually, they designed the V8 engine. You see, here were some very smart and resourceful people. But they thought the mission was too great and they were not enough. But someone else believed they could do it. And eventually they did. What's in your hands this morning? Oh, I'm not skilled to, to reach my friends for Jesus. I'm not skilled to be part of kids' church. I'm not whatever. Oh God, I don't have the time. Oh God, I don't have the money to commit to the mission. And we end up living like Philip or Andrew. The mission is too great and I am too small. But I love this story because they are not the only people in this story. The next person is the little boy. Our second character, the little boy. So this little guy, Andrew, graciously offers up his food. Hey, let's take his food. Now it's interesting because we learn a lot about this little boy from this story. It says he has five barley loaves. We don't think anything of that. But you see, there was a Jewish saying, look at the field of barley, and the answer was, tell it to the donkeys. You see, barley was the poorest of the poor person's food. If you made barley loaves, that means you were incredibly poor. So here we have this young boy with five barley loaves and two fish. And it says he was all alone. Well, that's true, not true. Because his family would be somewhere in the crowd. He wouldn't be by himself. But here he is. He's standing with everything for his family. And they were incredibly poor. If he gave this away, there would be no other meal for that family that day. There was nothing. So Andrew puts him in the spotlight and says, Hey, here's a boy's food. He couldn't even look at mom and dad. Where's mom and dad so they can at least tell me? He didn't have that. 
He's by himself. He has everything they own for the day. What does he do? He gives it away. He sacrifices it to Jesus. Now you see, here's the problem for you and me. We're like, oh yes, I would do the same. That's because we know the end of the story. You know, if we'd been there, we'd have been like, it's okay. Jesus, is, watch what he's about to do. He's about to make this miraculous thing. That little boy knew none of that. Now imagine you're him. You do not know the outcome of this story. You can't even lean on your mom and dad. You have everything that belongs to your family. is in your hands and you're willing to say, I'm going to give it to you. That's not a little sacrifice. That's everything. He gave everything to Jesus, but he did not know the outcome of the story. So what about you this morning with these hands? Oh God, I have no skill. God, I don't have the time. God, I just don't have the finance. Are you willing to live like the little boy and say, but what I have, I'm going to give all to you. Because I do know the end of the story. And I do know you're a good God. And I'm going to show my trust by giving you everything in my hand. Are we willing to live like the little boy? Let me tell you a story. There's a well and a pump in the middle of the Saragossa Desert in Nevada. And back in the 1930s, there was a little sign next to it, and it said the following. This pump is all right as of June 1932. I put a new sucker washer into it, and it ought to last five years. But the washer dries out, and the pump has got to be primed. Under the white rock, I buried a bottle of water. Out of the sun and cork end up. There's enough water in it to prime the pump, but not if you drink some first. Pour about a quarter and let her soak to wet the leather. Then pour in the rest, medium fast, and pump like crazy. You'll get water. The well has never run dry. Have faith. When you get watered up, fill the bottle up and put it back where you found it for the next person. P.S. Don't go drinking the water first. Prime the pump with it and you'll get all you can hold. What would you do? You're in the desert. You know there's a bottle of water here and it's nice and cold and it'll satisfy you. Or you can trust the words of the letter and do something else that will result not in you get just you getting water but someone else. Because if you just drink that water, the well will never work again. What are you going to do? I mean, if we're being honest, I could just drink the bottle of water right here and I'd be fine. Or am I willing to trust the letter so that not only I will be okay, but those ahead of me or after me? You see, this is this story. This was the little boy's situation. He's standing right here with no idea about the outcome. Does he keep the food and know they'll be okay for the day? Or does he trust this man for an unknown future to see what will happen? What's in your hand this morning? So let's come to the final character in this story, 
is Jesus. Our final character is Jesus. What does he do? Well, he takes the sacrifice. He takes the offering. He takes that which was little and makes it into abundance. He does something miraculous. And everyone is satisfied. Now, it's interesting. John calls it a sign. What does a sign normally do? It points you to something, doesn't it? He says it was a sign. Because how does the story end? The people say, maybe this is the prophet come into the world. Jesus satisfies the physical need. They feel full. But he also gives a spiritual need. Maybe he's the one. Oh, I can't ever be a greeter at church. I don't have the skill. Can you stand and can you smile? You're a greeter. You know, I came into church this morning. It was my first time to your church. Now, as a pastor and missionary, I've been to lots of churches. But I was still nervous as I walked in this morning. I didn't know anyone really here. But a woman opened the door for me and said, welcome to church. And I breathed. And I relaxed. She met a physical need. She welcomed me. And I thought, Jesus is here. I can't ever do kids' work. Some of you maybe can't, but many of you can. And by being a kids' worker, you're providing a physical need for kids, that they are fed spiritually, but also that mom and dad can be fed spiritually here. And you point people to Jesus. I can't share my faith with my co-workers. Well, maybe you can sit with a co-worker at lunch and say, are you doing okay? You just look like you've been a bit sad the last few days. And they begin to tell you their story. You realize you're meeting a physical need. As a culture, we can't listen anymore. We're getting less empathetic. We can talk a lot, but we're not listening to one another. And do you know when you listen to their story that you'll actually make them feel better? But in their story, I can bet you the moment will come where something that Jesus has done in you can reflect into their story. And you might be given the glorious opportunity to say, I'm really sad to hear that. I've also been through that. But actually, I'm a Christian, I follow Jesus. Can I tell you how my Jesus took me through that moment? Was that hard? But you can meet a physical need by listening and you can meet a spiritual need that maybe point them towards Jesus. You see, Jesus came. He met the physical need. He also met the spiritual need and so can we. In 2010, me and my wife were living in southern Virginia and I was going to seminary at the time. And we knew I I had one year left more in seminary. And we began to pray and we put out a fleece before the Lord. Please don't do this. Fleeces are not good. But we said, Jesus, here's three things that we're going to put before you. Number one, we want to move to New England because it's the most like Europe. (laughs) Most people want to leave because of that. But that's all I'd ever known. Ministry to people who don't want to know Jesus. My wife had spent five years ministering to people who don't want to know Jesus. Most people in New England don't want to know Jesus. So he said, God, put us where we feel comfortable. 
But then secondly, we said, Lord, put us where we can reach college students because we just believe you've wired us to reach the next generation. And often they say, if you don't get them by the end of their college years, it's very hard to become a Christian after that. And then finally we said, we want to be where people aren't doing ministry like our movement does ministry. Well, we were praying and my wife said, I feel God's calling us to Yale. I'm like, nope. Mm -mm, mm -mm. I do not witness that at all. Them's really smart students. So immediately I'm looking at my hand and saying, and my skill is too small. My talent is not enough. Over the period of the next three months, we heard five preaches from the book of Jonah. How often do you hear Jonah? Not that much. But you see, Jonah was significant because you know right at the end of Jonah, there's this really weird line where God basically says, look, shouldn't I care for the great people of Nineveh? Then it says, population 120,000 people. What a strange thing to say. But you know the population of New Haven where Yale is? It's 120,000 people. And God just began to do this. And I was still like, nope. So my wife had been gone for a week. And I had been at an intensive class on how to pioneer a new ministry. That's what we were going to do. And by the end of the week, my conclusion, I can't do this. I'm not a pioneer. I do not have any of the attributes that I am supposed to have. Picked up my wife from the airport in the drive home. I gave her every reason we, are, we can't do it. No, we can't. We can't. My wife is way more wise than me. She just listened. Mm-hmm. We go to church the next day. It's a guest preacher. First words from the guest preacher. Do you ever feel God's calling you to something and you just say, I can't do it? Oh, no, 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 no. Then he says, turn to the book of Jonah. Mm-mm. And then at one point in his message, he actually stopped and he said, I think some of you have to move to New England. No, 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 not listening to God. But we knew. So in January 2011, we flew up to Boston. Even though we knew, we just wanted to come visit Yale's campus. Now, January the 14th, 2011, you may not remember it, but three feet of snow had fallen in two days just before. Now, my wife had grown up in Nebraska. So when we were driving from Boston to New Haven, she's like, this is great. Look at the snow. And I'm like, where am I? I can't move here. People think we get snow in Scotland. We don't. We're just wet and rainy. We don't get much snow. We prayer walked Yale's campus for four minutes, and I was like, get me out of here. I am so cold. Find me a Starbucks. <laughs> Dunkin' Donuts, Dunkin' Donuts, Dunkin' Donuts, Dunkin' Donuts. I'm like, what is this foreign land I am in? <laughs> we find the one Starbucks. I'm like, it's a sign. So we sit in the Starbucks, and we're processing it because, you see, in our hand, we're thinking, we cannot reach Yale students. We're not Yale graduates. How can we reach Yale students for Jesus? And then we're thinking, this is going to cost us all of our time. This is, we're, we'll be full-time missionaries. But we know the life of a pastor. How many hours a week are we going to commit to this thing? Are we willing to do that? And then finally, being missionaries, we're like, well, there goes the idea of ever buying a home. We're going to be missionaries. 
Because like, we're not going to have money. And that was the thoughts running through our head. And then God spoke to me and said, this is your Nineveh. Clear as a bell. And I knew God said, you've got to tell that to Sarah. So I turned and I said, and I still remember, we, we actually, I meet with students in the same Starbucks today, on the same table. And I turned to her and said, honey, I think God's saying this is our Nineveh. And she started to cry. And I thought, she really doesn't want to come here. <laughs> but she said, since we landed in Boston, I've had one phrase in my head all day. This is your Nineveh. This is your Nineveh. God has called us to our Nineveh. But we had to be willing to open our hands and say, our skills, our time, and our finance, we're going to give it all to you, Jesus. What will you do? There was a great quote I read as I was preparing this message, and it said this. This story is about human difficulty versus divine sufficiency. We think the mission is too difficult. But in this story, we see God meeting us and saying, yeah, but I'm all you need. Watch what I can do. This morning, who are you like? Are you like Philip? The mission's too great. It's too great. We can't reach Burlington. I can't reach my neighbors. They don't care about Jesus. They don't care. It's too great. Are you like Andrew? And I am not enough. How can I reach my neighbors? How can I reach my work colleagues? How can I serve the mission of this church when I don't feel I have anything to offer? Are we going to be like the little boy? We're going to open up our hands and say, I give you everything. And I don't know the outcome, but you do. And I believe you are a good God. And you'll love me and look after me as I give you everything that's in my hands. And there's a great scripture that says, he is able to do exceedingly and abundantly above all you could ask or imagine according to his power working in you. He is. Who are we going to live like today? Abel had a lamb and he sacrificed it before the Lord. Moses had a staff and he threw it down and it was transformed by the power of God. Mary had an alabaster jar of oil in her hands, everything she had. And a story of forgiveness is still told today. And an old lady had two pennies. But she gave it to him and we remember her sacrifice. Who are we going to be today? Who are we going to be? What's in your hands? Trust him. He's a good God. And he will be able to do exceedingly and abundantly all you could ask or imagine according to his power working within you. Let's pray. Jesus, by your spirit, would you speak to us? That every person in this place today, Father, would be willing to open up their hands to give you whatever they are holding on to, that the mission of this house would be fulfilled.
to reach Burlington, their neighborhoods, their neighbors, their friends, their family, their work colleagues, and that the mission in this house would be fulfilled, Father. We give it all over to you. You will be done. Your kingdom come. So we surrender ourselves to you today, Jesus, that we would see you do great things for the glory of the King. And all God's people said, Amen.